Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, reading today from Spurgeon's Sovereignty Sermons, a series we started quite some time ago. It goes in line with what we just finished with the uh, Free Grace Broadcaster. Same topic. Let's see what he's talking about this time. It's Salvation Altogether by Grace, delivered July 29, 1866, at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington, London, England. He uses 2 Timothy 1.9 as his text, Who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. If we would influence thoughtful persons, it must be by solid arguments, Shallow minds may be wrought upon by mere warmth of emotion and force of excitement, but the more valuable part of the community must be dealt with in quite another manner. When the Apostle Paul was desirous to influence his son in the faith, Timothy, who was a diligent and earnest student and a man of gifts as well as grace, he did not attempt to affect him by mere appeals to his feelings but felt that the most effectual way to act upon him was to remind him of solid doctrinal truth, which he knew him to have believed. This is a lesson for the ministry at large. Certain earnest preachers are incessantly exciting the people, and but seldom, if ever, instructing them. They carry much fire, but very little light. God forbid that we should say a word against appealing to the feelings. This is most needful in its place. But then there is a due proportion to be observed in it. A religion which is based upon, sustained, and maintained simply by excitement will necessarily be very flimsy and unsubstantial and will yield very speedily to the crush of opposition or to the crumbling hand of time. The preacher may touch the feelings by rousing appeals, as the harper touches the harp strings. It would be very foolish if he should neglect so ready and admirable an instrument, but still, as he is dealing with reasonable creatures, he must not forget to enlighten the intellect and instruct the understanding. And how can he appeal to the understanding better than by presenting to it the truth which the Holy Ghost teacheth. Scriptural doctrine must furnish us with powerful motives to urge upon the minds of Christians. It seems to me that if we could by some unreasoning impulse move you to a certain course of action, it might be well in its way, but it would be unsafe and untrustworthy, for you would be equally open to be moved in an opposite direction by other persons, more skillful in such operations. But if God enables us, by His Spirit, to influence your minds by solid truth and substantial argument, you will then move with the constancy of power which nothing can turn aside. The feather flies in the wind, but it has no inherent power to move, and consequently, when the gale is over, it falls to the ground. Such is the religion of excitement. 
but the eagle has life within itself, and its wings bear it aloft and onward, whether the breeze favors it or not. Such is religion when sustained by a conviction of the truth. The well-taught man in Christ Jesus stands firm where the uninstructed infant would fall or be carried away. Be not carried about with every wind of doctrine, says the apostle, and those are least likely to be so carried, who are well established in the truth as it is in Jesus. It is somewhat remarkable, at least it may seem so to persons who are not accustomed to think about the subject, that the apostle, in order to excite Timothy to boldness, uh, to keep him constant in the faith, reminds him of the great doctrine that the grace of God reigns in the salvation of men. He gives in this verse, this parenthetical verse, as some call it, but which seems to me to be fully in the current of the passage, he gives in this verse a brief summary of the gospel, showing the great prominence which it gives to the grace of God, with the design of maintaining Timothy in the boldness of his testimony for Christ. I do not doubt but that a far greater power for usefulness lies concealed within the doctrines of grace that than uh, some men have ever dreamed of. It has been usual to look upon doctrinal truth as being nothing more than unpractical theory. And many have spoken of the precepts of God's word as being more practical and more useful. The, the day may yet come when in clearer light we shall perceive that sound doctrine is the very root and vital energy of practical holiness, and that to teach the people the truth which God has revealed is the readiest and surest way of leading them to obedience and persevering holiness. May the Holy Spirit assist us while we shall first consider the doctrine taught by the Apostle in this text, and secondly, the uses of that doctrine. So, number one, very carefully let us consider the doctrine taught by the Apostle in this text. Friends will remember that it is not our object to preach the doctrine which is most popular or most uh, palatable, nor do we desire to, to set forth the views of any one person in the assembly. Our aim is to give what we judge to be the meaning of the text. We shall probably deliver doctrine which many of you will not like, and if you should not like it, we shall not be at all surprised, or even if you be vexed and angry, we shall not be at all alarmed, because we never understood that we were commissioned to preach what would please our hearers, nor were expected by sensible nor, to say, gracious men to shape our views to suit the notions of our audience. We count ourselves amenable to God and to the text. And if we give the meaning of the text, we believe we shall give the mind of God, and we shall be likely to have his favor, which will be sufficient for us, contradict us who may. However, let every candid mind be willing to receive the truth, if it be clearly in the inspired word. Uh, number one, the apostle, in stating his doctrine in the following words, uh, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, 
but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, declares God to be the author of salvation, who hath saved us and called us. The whole tenor of the verse is towards a strong affirmation of Jonah's doctrine that salvation is of the Lord. It would require very great twisting, involving more than ingenuity, It would need dishonesty to make our salvation by man out of this text. But to find salvation altogether of God in it is to perceive the truth which lies upon the very surface. No need for profound inquiry. The wayfaring man, though a fool, shall not err therein. For the text says as plainly as words can say, God hath saved us. God hath called us with a holy calling. The Apostle then, in order to bring forth the truth that salvation is of grace, declares that it is of God, that it springs directly and entirely from Him, and from Him only. Is not this according to the teaching of the Holy Spirit in other places, where he affirms over and over again that the Alpha and Omega of our salvation must be found not in ourselves, but in our God? Our apostle, in saying that God hath saved us, refers to all the persons of the divine unity. The Father hath saved us. God hath given to us eternal life, 1 John 5, 2. The Father himself loveth you. It was he whose gracious mind first conceived the thought of redeeming his chosen from the ruin of the fall. It was his mind which first planned the way of salvation by substitution. It was from his generous heart that the thought first sprang that Christ should suffer as the covenant head of his people, as saith the apostle. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Ephesians 1, 3-6. From the bowels of divine compassion came the gift of the only begotten Son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Father selected the persons who should receive an interest in the redemption of his Son, for these are described as called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. The plan of salvation, in all its details, sprang from the Father's wisdom and grace. The Apostle did not, however, overlook the work of the Son. It is most certainly through the Son of God that we are saved, for is not his name Jesus, the Savior, incarnate in the flesh? His holy life is the righteousness in which saints are arrayed, while his ignominious and painful death has filled the sacred bath of blood in which the sinner must be washed that he may be made clean. 
It is through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus that the people of God become accepted in the Beloved. With one consent before the eternal throne, they sing, Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sin in his blood, unto him be glory. And they chant that hymn because he deserves the glory which they ascribe to him. It is the Son of God who is the Savior of men, and men are not the saviors of themselves. Nor did the apostle, I am persuaded, forget that third person in the blessed unity, the Holy Spirit. Who but the Holy Spirit first gives us power to understand the gospel? For the carnal mind understandeth not the things that be of God. Doth not the Holy Spirit influence our will, turning us from the obstinacy of our former rebellion to the obedience of the truth? Doth not the Holy Ghost renew us, creating us in Christ Jesus unto good works? Is it not by the Holy Spirit's breath that we live in the spiritual life? If Is he not to us an instructor, a comforter, a quickener? Is he not everything, in fact, through his active operations upon our mind? The Father, then, in planning, the Son in redeeming, the Spirit in applying the redemption must be spoken of as the one God who hath saved us. Brethren, to say that we save ourselves is to utter a manifest absurdity. We are called in Scripture a temple, a holy temple in the Lord. But shall anyone assert that the stones of the edifice were their own architect? Shall it be said that the stones of the building in which we are now assembled cut themselves into their present shape and then spontaneously came together and piled this spacious edifice? Should anyone assert such a foolish thing, uh, we should be disposed to doubt his sanity. Much more may we suspect the spiritual sanity of any man who should venture to affirm that the great temple of the Church of God designed and erected itself. No, we believe that God the Father was the architect, sketched the plan, supplies the materials, and will complete the work. Shall it also be said that those who are redeemed, redeemed themselves, that slaves of Satan break their own fetters? Then why was a Redeemer needed at all? How should there be any need for Jesus to descend into the world to redeem those who could redeem themselves? Do you believe that the sheep of God, whom he has taken from between the jaws of the lion, could have rescued themselves? It were a strange thing if such were the case. Our Lord Jesus came not to do a work of supererogation, but if he came to save persons who might have saved themselves, he certainly came without a necessity for so doing. We cannot believe that Christ came to do what the sinners might have done themselves. No, he hath trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with him. Isaiah. And the redemption of his people shall give glory unto himself only. Shall it be asserted that those who were once dead have spiritually quickened themselves? Can the dead make themselves alive? Who shall assert that Lazarus, 
rotting in the grave, came forth to life of himself. If it be so said and so believed, then, nay, not even then will we believe that the dead in sin have ever quickened themselves. Those who are saved by God the Holy Spirit are created anew according to Scripture. But whoever dreamed of creation creating itself? God spake the world out of nothing, but nothing did not aid in the creation of the universe. Divine energy can do everything, but what can nothing do? (laughs) Now, if we have a new creation, there must have been a creator. And it is clear that not being then spiritually created, we could not have assisted in our own new creation, unless, indeed, death can assist life and non-existence aid in creation. The carnal mind does not assist the Spirit of God in new creating a man, but altogether, regeneration is the work of God the Holy Ghost, and the work of renewal is from his unassisted power. Father, Son, and Spirit, we then adore. And putting these thoughts together, we would humbly prostrate ourselves at the foot of the throne of the august majesty, and acknowledge that if saved, he alone hath saved us, and unto him be the glory. Secondly, we we next remark that grace is in this verse rendered conspicuous when we see that God pursues a singular method. Who hath saved us and called us. The peculiarity of the manner lies in three things. First, in the completeness of it. The apostle uses the perfect tense and says, who hath saved us. Believers in Christ Jesus are saved. They're not looked upon as persons who are in a hopeful state and may ultimately be saved, but they are already saved. This is not according to the common talk of professors nowadays, for many of them speak of being saved when they come to die. But it is according to the usage of Scripture to speak of us who are saved. And be it known this morning that every man and woman here is either saved at this present moment or lost, and that salvation is not a blessing to be enjoyed upon the dying bed and to be sung of in a future state above, but a matter to be obtained, received, promised, and enjoyed now. God hath saved his saints, Mark, not partly saved them, but perfectly saved them. The Christian is perfectly saved in God's purpose. God has ordained him unto salvation, and that purpose is complete. He is saved also as to the price which has been paid for him, for this is not in part, but in whole. The substitutionary work which Christ has offered is not a certain proportion of the work to be done, but it is finished, was the cry of the Savior ere he died. The believer is also perfectly saved in his covenant head, for as we were utterly lost, As soon as ever Adam fell, before we had committed any actual sin, so every man in Christ was saved in the second Adam when he finished his work. The Savior completed his work, and in the sense in which Paul uses that expression, 
he hath saved us. What? Saved us before he called us? <laughs> yes, so the text says. But is a man saved before he is called by grace? Not in his own experience, not as far as the work of the Holy Spirit goes, but he is saved in God's purpose, in Christ's redemption, and in his relationship to his covenant head. And he is saved, moreover, in this respect, that the work of his salvation is done, and he has only to receive it as a finished work. In the olden times of imprisonment for debt, it would have been quite correct for you to step into the cell of a debtor and say to him, I have freed you, if you had paid his debts and obtained an order for his discharge. Well, but he's still in prison. Yes, but you really liberated him as soon as you paid his debts. It is true he was still in prison, but he was not legally there. And no sooner did he know that the debt was paid and that receipt was pleaded before proper authorities then the man obtained his liberty. And so the Lord Jesus Christ paid the debts of his people before they knew anything about it. Did he not pay them on the cross more than 1,800 years ago, 2,000 years ago, to the utmost penny? And is not this the reason why, as soon as he meets with us in a way of grace, he cries, I have saved thee. Lay hold on eternal life. We are then virtually, though not actually, saved before we are called. He hath saved us and called us. There is yet a third peculiarity, and that is in connection with the calling. God has called us with a holy calling. Those whom the Savior saved upon the tree are in due time effectually called by the power of God the Holy Spirit unto holiness. They leave their sins. They endeavor to be like Christ. They choose holiness, not out of any compulsion, but from the stress of a new nature, which leads them to rejoice in holiness, just as naturally as aforetime they delighted in sin. Whereas their old nature loved everything that was evil, their new nature cannot sin because it is born of God, and it loveth everything that is good. Doth not the apostle mention this result of our calling? in order to meet those who say that God calls his people because he foresees their holiness? No, not so. He calls them to that holiness. That holiness is not a cause, but an effect. It is not the motive of his purpose, but the result of his purpose. He neither chose them nor called them because they were holy, but he called them that they might be holy. And holiness is the beauty produced by his workmanship in them. The excellences which we see in a believer are as much the work of God as the atonement itself. Well, this second point brings out very sweetly the fullness of the grace of God. First, salvation must be of grace and because the Lord is the author of it. And what motive but grace could move him to save the guilty? And in the next place, salvation must be of grace because the Lord works in such a manner that our righteousness is forever excluded. Salvation is completed by God, and therefore not of man, neither by man. Salvation is wrought by God in an order which puts our holiness as a consequence, and not as a cause, and therefore merit is forever disowned, 
But when a speaker desires to strengthen his point and to make himself clear, he generally puts in a negative as to the other side. And so the apostle adds a negative, not according to our works. The world's great preaching is, do as well as you can, live a moral life, God will save you. The gospel preaching is this, thou art a lost sinner, thou canst deserve nothing of God but his displeasure. If thou art to be saved, it must be by an act of sovereign grace. God must freely extend the silver scepter of his love to thee. For thou art a guilty wretch who deserves to be sent to the lowest hell. The best works are so full of sin that they can in no degree save thee. To the free mercy of God thou must owe all things. Oh, saith one, are good works of no use? God's works are of use when a man is saved. They are the evidences of his being saved. But good works do not save a man. Good works do not influence the mind of God to save a man. For if so, salvation would be a matter of debt and not of grace. The Lord has declared over and over in his word, not of works, lest any man should boast. By the works of the law there shall no flesh living be justified. The apostle in the epistle to the Galatians is very strong indeed upon this point. Indeed, the, he thunders it out again and again and again. He denies that salvation is even so much as in part due to our works. For if it be by work, then he declares it is not of grace. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. And if it be of grace, it is not of works. Otherwise, work is no more work. Paul assures us that the two principles of grace and merit can no more mix together than fire and water. That if man is to be saved by the mercy of God, it must be by the mercy of God and not by works. But if man is to be saved by works, it must be by works entirely and not by mercy mixed therewith. For mercy and work will not go together. Jesus saves, but he does all the work or none. He is author and finisher. Works must not rob him of his due. Sinner, you must either receive salvation freely from the hand of divine bounty, or else you must earn it by your own unassisted merits which last is utterly impossible, all oh, that you would yield to the first. My brethren, this is the truth which still needs to be preached. This is the truth which shook all Europe from end to end when Luther first proclaimed it. Is not this the old thunderbolt which the great reformer hurled at Rome, justified freely by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus? But why did God make salvation to be by faith? Scripture tells us, Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace. If it had been by works, it must have been by debt. But since it is by faith, we can clearly see that there can be no merit in faith. It must be, therefore, by grace. My text is even more explicit yet, for the eternal purpose is mentioned. The next thing the apostle says is this, Who hath saved us 
and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose. Mark that word, according to his own purpose. Oh, how some people wriggle over that word as if they were worms on a fisherman's hook. But there it stands and cannot be got rid of. God saves his people according to his purpose, nay, according to his own purpose. My brethren and sisters, do you not see all how all merit and, and the power of the creature are shut out here when you are saved? Not according to your purpose or merit, but according to his own purpose. Now, I shall not dwell on this. It is not exactly the object of this morning's discourse to bring out in full the great mystery of electing love. But I will not for a moment keep back the truth. If any man be saved, it is not because he proposed to be saved, but because God proposed to have him. Have you never read the Holy Spirit's testimony? It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. The Savior said to his apostles what he in effect says also to us. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you might bring forth fruit. Some hold one and some another view concerning the freedom of the will, but our Savior's doctrine is, you will not come to me that you might have life. You will not come. Your wills will never bring you. If you do come, it's because grace inclined you. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. Whosoever cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. It's a great and precious general text, but it is quite consistent with the rest of the same verse. All the Father giveth me shall come to me. Our text tells us that our salvation is according to his own purpose. It is a strange thing that men should be so angry against the purpose of God. We ourselves have a purpose. We permit our fellow creatures to have some will of their own, and especially in giving away their own goods. But my God is to be bound and fettered by men, not permitted to do as he wills with his own. <laughs> but be this known unto ye, O men that reply against God, that he giveth no account of his matters, but asks of you, Can I not do as I will with my own? He ruleth in heaven and in the armies of this lower world, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? We must stop there. That's a little over halfway through, I believe. And tomorrow, Friday, as we sit here on March 25th, 2021, we will give the end of that message. Saturday is our Poems Day, and Monday we begin the book of Ezekiel. Looking forward to being with you every day as the Lord enables. God bless you. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun. And Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.